0: Genesis chapter 2. So far in chapter 1 we've uncovered a lot, but maybe not nearly quite enough. But so far we've seen in the creation of this world, the first five days God had made all things, the On the first day there was evening and morning and all the first day and all things he created that day he pronounced very good. On the second day he did the same pronouncing everything he had made that day good. On the third day he made everything he had made on that day and pronounced it good. On the fourth day he also pronounced that day good, and the fifth day he pronounced it good as well. And the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. What was so special about the sixth day? Well, the the very special thing about the sixth day was that he created what we refer to sometimes as creation's crown, Adam and Eve, mankind. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But after six days of creation, our text this morning, Genesis 2 1 through 3, there's a change in the pattern, there's a change in the language. interest i'm going to make a brief point about it it won't be the main point of the lesson there's different language he's not proclaiming evening and morning as the end of that day he is saying that he just rested on the seventh day i want to look this morning at the perfection of god's holy rest or our understanding of its importance so allow me to pray before we go any further Lord Jesus, as your servant stands before you and before this congregation, it is not for any of my honor. I do not seek anyone's praise. I long to be gripped by the truth that is in your word. And my desire for your congregation, your church, is that your word grip their hearts as well. So, as we look together this morning into your word, open up its truth to us that we may see salvation, that we may see that this thought of redemption was no plan B. that your intents and purposes were always for redemption and restoration give us your insight give us your wisdom give us your light in Jesus' name amen we are a congregation that believes in the inspiration of scripture 2 Timothy 3:16 all scripture is get breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I know many of you are familiar with that passage that Paul wrote to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God. Just last week we read where God in Genesis 1 and 2, talking about the creation of man, we see where God breathed into man and man became a living soul. The same breath that brought life to Adam is described by the Apostle Paul, and I don't think there's any difference as the very inspiration that brings us his word. So we need to believe it. We need to trust it. We need to receive it. It is spiritual life for each and every one of us. So when we look at scripture, and we look at the words, we need to realize they have value. They have spiritual power. There's no magic there. But it's going to give us confidence, it's going to strengthen our faith when we are tested and tried by all of the turmoil and travail that we see around us. I would like to focus in on the lesson this morning, the perfection of God's holy rest. We want to understand the importance of it. What is significant about the Sabbath, and why is it important? Genesis 2, 1 through 3, talks about the seventh day, where God had finished all that he had done for creation, and he rested. Does it say there is any end to the rest? Does it say anything about evening, morning, bringing an end to that rest, that day of rest? So there is something clearly different here. Some have suggested that since this pattern breaks the pattern of the first six six days that Genesis gives us, that those days can only be taken as analogical or analogous. That's why some people suggest, that. oh, well, then there could be a day-age theory or a gap theory or any other kind of theistic evolutionary process. I disagree with that. I think there's something more here that we need to see, and that's what we need to investigate. In one of the two accounts where God gives the commandments to Moses, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8, the Lord said, "'Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy.'" Six days you shall labor and, the de- and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner or the sojourner who is in within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and the se- and rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it I know most of you are familiar with that. But we need to look further because there is still more. Exodus thirty-one seventeen. The Lord through Moses said, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So Genesis describes the seventh day differently, deliberately. There's a reason. He's not trying to tell us that there's something different about the first six days. It does not diminish their significance. It does not diminish their time frame at all. He's just telling us there's something different about the seventh day. And there's a lesson there. It's not explicit in Genesis. We have to look at other places in Scripture to understand what is there. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. It's not as though, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious. I don't mean to be cute, but it's not as though he got done with the work on on the seventh day and said, "Okay, fine, let's sit down and see what's which team's playing on the on the television this afternoon." That's not the kind of rest he's talking about. Allow me to share the account of John chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus healed a man, a paralytic, at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. John 5, beginning at verse 5, the Bible says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred and when I am going another steps down before me. If you're not familiar with this passage, this was a pool that was apparently fed by a spring and every now and then the water would stir from underneath and people thought, did not understand the mystery. They just saw the water stirring and thought, Oh, an angel did that. Get in there and, and feel the power and you will be healed. It's superstitious. But there have been a lot of people around the world for generations who have looked, taking bath in hot mineral springs here and there and, all around and just for relief from some pain. And this man had the idea that if I could just get there, I could be healed, but he was paralyzed. And the Lord came to him had pity on him and said, don't you want to be healed? Take up your bed and walk. Simple command. Not giving any anger, just... Take up your bed and walk. There is something in the power of Christ's life-giving words that revived this man's body, and he knew it. He couldn't move, but he felt life coming into his limbs, and he got up, picked up his bed, and walked away. Two problems. Two problems. It happened on the Sabbath day. The Lord Jesus, by Jewish law, was forbidden to do work on the Sabbath day. And this was considered by the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests to be work. Another problem the man was not supposed to carry anything larger than the half of a boiled egg on the Sabbath. That was considered work. Here he had rolled up his bed, his pallet, and was walking away. John 5, continuing, verse 9. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things these things on the Sabbath. Pay close attention to verse 17. Jesus answered them, "My Father is working until now, and I am working. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible says that the Lord finished all his work. But here, Genesis and John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus himself says, My Father is working, and I am working. Is there a contradiction in Scripture? it's often asked again and again and again and again every time there is some apologeticist some believer who is debating someone or defending scripture or giving an answer to the lost that they, they always open up usually open up the floor of their for their discussion and to get received questions from people who are skeptical questions that people who have questions about about scripture that they're unclear about it and nearly every one of them gets the same question. Why did God create if he knew man would sin? It's related to our problem about this Sabbath rest, so don't, don't wander away. The theological answer, according to our confession, that God made all things for his own glory. And perhaps that's not enough. But we can also understand it is to display his gracious, patient love. Many many people have accused God of being angry and violent, particularly as they see or perceive the Old Testament God. Others have accused him of being distant and unconnected but he is just being patient and gracious why did God create if he knew man would sin and indeed he did know God is omniscient he knows all things Isaiah 46 8 through 10 remember this and stand firm Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What Isaiah is saying here is that everything that happened before creation, God knew then. Everything that happens, he knew before he said, let there be light. But we need to look at this closely because man was created in innocence and freedom. Adam and Eve were never forced to love God. They were never forced to love God. Innocence and freedom. Freedom. Their desires were never divinely manipulated or coerced against their will to do things they did not want to do, like loving God. We shall see that they were given really two commands. The first command they were given was have children. The second command they were given to keep the garden. We'll look at that more closely next week. They were truly free to love God or not. Every one of us wants to be loved. But love should always be freely given. True love is not forced. No one, I don't think anyone, would want it to be forced. Years ago, The Temptation recording a song, a, a song, most of you know it. I'm going to make you love me. Yes, I will. You know why I will. It's a catchy tune, but it's a bad concept. You get a young man confronting a young lady, and he's saying, I'm going to make you love me. And she's going to say, well, we'll just see about that. No one wants to be forced to love anybody doesn't work we are not meant created to be or designed to be wind-up automatons so why did God create if he knew man would sin there are four options that we can consider and an apologeticist who is now deceased presented these and I think they make good sense the first option God could have done in regard to creation is don't create a world at all. Just let things continue in eternity as they are. He didn't need anything, He doesn't need us. The second option is a world where there is no such thing as good and evil. Here we would have a world, you remember the late John Lennon song, Imagine. Nice catchy tune again, but you think that through, and it's really just a land, a world of melancholy depression. Nothing to live or die for, no heaven or hell. Just flatline, kind of depressed land. Nothing there. God could have made something like that, but there would have been no real life, no real love, no real joy. The third option would have been, so we have no world at all, a world where there is no such thing as good or evil. A a third option is a world where we would only choose good. (coughs) Excuse me, that's the world of the automaton, forced to do what is right without any freedom. And then finally, there is this world where we have the possibility or the freedom to choose good or evil. Given the privilege of freedom to choose, this fourth option is the only world where love is possible. (coughs) So then, God must be glorified through our choices, through our actions, through our obedience. Returning to our question what is the significance of Sabbath rest? Did God rest from all of his work, or didn't he? On the seventh day, From what did he rest? Creation, yes, but there is more. We need to know and understand. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, well, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us as for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundation of the world. Sounds like God did more work than just create. God's purposes are eternal and unchangeable. God's promises are eternal and unchangeable. Made before the foundation, worked out before the foundation of the world. If he knew that Adam and Eve would fail, don't you think that he would probably provide a remedy? And he absolutely does. We shall see that more closely as we work further into Genesis. But God rested from all his work, and part of that work had to have been to set in motion a plan for the redemption of man and the restoration of the world. A verse from the great high priestly prayer of the Lord, the prayer the Lord gave to his father the night before he went to the cross. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And again, in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In him. In them. Excuse me. When we look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we have the story of a master who goes on a, far, on a long journey and he chooses three of his servants and gives five talents to one, two talents to the other, and one talent to another. When he returns from his journey, he calls them all to give him account. the one who had five talents. Master, here I have five talents more. And the second did the same. Here, you gave me two talents. Here, I have returned two talents more. I've doubled this investment. And the third one held his master in contempt. He didn't do anything with it. He just buried it, hid it, tried to protect it so he didn't lose it. Matthew 25, 25, I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. He's being sarcastic. He's repeating the answer, the excuse this man gave him. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has five talents for he, for to everyone who has, will have more, will more be given. And he will have an abundance, but for the one who has not, even that, even what he has will be taken away and cast The worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where the son of man comes in his glory. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is kind of a lengthy parable, a lengthy lesson. But what begins is a story that seems to have an earthly meaning presented in an earthly context, suddenly changes to present eternal and spiritual consequences because the Lord himself is trying to tell us that everything we do here in this world is no surprise to God. The fall of Adam and Eve was not a surprise to God. I believe and I understand and I accept that he expected it. That's why before the foundation of the world, he prepared a covenant within the Godhead for the redemption of mankind. He prepared a way. here in this parable of the talents, he's telling each and every one of us that we are held accountable to God because these things are from eternity and they will continue to eternity. The lost shall be judged. The redeemed who faithfully love their master shall enter into his blessing forever because of a promise made before the foundation of the world. Did God rest from all his work on the Sabbath day? The work of creation? Yes, that's obvious. The work of redemption and resolution? the plan was laid out the plan was there but i think redemption from our point of view is carried out throughout all of all of history we find that in other scriptures one more point of understanding the seventh day or sabbath rest Jesus and his disciples were walking along the countryside. In Mark chapter 2, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry. And those who were with him, he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is he saying here? What is he telling the priests and those who were doubting him? Those who were questioning him? Sabbath was made for man. Is he talking about the seventh day of the week only? Recognizing one day out of seven is a testimony of our faith to him. It fulfills no righteousness for us. It gains no merit before him. It is just a testimony of faith that we will honor our God, our Father, our Lord, and our Savior one day of the week. As the pattern in scripture tells us to. But what is this Sabbath rest? What is so important about that term? Quite frankly, Christ is our Sabbath rest. Christ is our spiritual seventh day. person of Christ Jesus is our rest. Christ is our perfect righteousness. He has cleansed us from all sin and all of its stain. He has, by his life, done the work of perfect obedience in order that we may rest. And that plan, that redemption, was given to, laid in place, put in motion before creation began. That's why scripture says God was able to rest. Have you ever heard anyone say, if I promise to do something, it's as good as done. That's what Christ was saying. That's what God the Father was saying. I promise to redeem It is as good as it done. In our time, it's taken several thousand years to get to where Christ died in our place. But it was established as a surefire promise before creation began. Let me see if I can illustrate that another way. Most of the world is enamored with the ability of professional athletes we might be a football fan, we might be a basketball fan, or a baseball fan, or a golf fan. We might prefer the Olympics, but we are just just enamored with gifted athletes who, on top of their gifts and abilities, put on a lot of hard work and training, demanding labor in order to get as good as they are so that they could be the best and compare that to the rest of us. Most of us are flabby and weak and slow and, like me, quite lazy. We like to buy buy all the gear and wear the merch. We like to support our teams, our athletic heroes, whether it be Michael Jordan or LeBron, LeBron James. I don't even know their names. We may exercise every now and then at the gym whenever we get time or whenever we feel like it, but we really don't come close to the man or woman who trains constantly, diligently, faithfully, just for a few moments of fame to get their name in a record book. Compared that to the religious life There are people who try to be good and faithful to the Christian principles, to Scripture. Some appear to succeed. And they give all glory to God, at least the faithful ones do. Others are just spiritually flabby and weak and lazy. But they still have no problem identifying as Christians, kind of like wearing spiritual merch. I'm a Christian. I don't act like one I, you, I may not look like, but I'm a Christian. Matthew five twenty, the Lord told his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me... Paraphrase that just a little bit to illustrate the point. For I tell you, unless your stamina exceeds the Olympic athletes or the football players, you will never enter the record books, you will never be known, you will never be recognized. That's essentially what he is saying here. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So then, what has Christ done? He's done the work for us. He's been the obedient one for us. And we claim by faith his righteousness, his obedience, in surrendering our unhealthy unfit, unspiritual disobedience and repenting of it in order that we might wear his righteous robes and take his crown in glory. And we don't deserve it. It's not ours. It's his. But in him we find rest. The, Olymp- the, the Olympic athletes, particularly the ones who Participate in the decathlon, do they do all of the training and all of the work and all of the labor. And the winner runs that final lap and comes in first. And they give them the flag of his nation. And he gets to take a victory lap, running with joy in his heart. We understand that. We can see that. That man or that woman has worked hard and long. They've trained well. they put in the hours. they put in the work. But if you compare that to spiritual requirements, we, we can't do that. We can't be that faithful. We can't be that obedient. We can't be that righteous. We cannot be that fit or that strong. Christ is. Christ has. Hebrews 2, it was fitting that he, Lord Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I may be reading a little bit into this passage right here, but what Christ is it was fitting that he for whom by all things Exist in bringing many sons to glory. The language here he is using is the language of the arena in Rome. The champion representing his children brings the victory and then clothes each and every one of us in righteousness and go take the victory lap. He does the work, we get the rest. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We don't get to go to heaven by our own righteousness. The church is bad enough now with people boasting about how good they are, how faithful they are, how much money they give, how often they're at church, who they support, what president they vote for. They want everybody to see how good they are. Just think, if we got into heaven by our own works, what would it sound like at dinner time? Everybody's boasting about how they got there. God is saying, I'll have none of it. You come by the merits of my son and my son only, or you don't come at all. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I hope this makes sense. Seventh-day rest is fulfilled completely in Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our salvation. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for your word and its truth. And we pray this day as we leave here that we might be encouraged and helped and nourished by your word and its truth and its light. May your spirit Make all points clear to our understanding. And may we rejoice in what Christ has done for us. It is in his name we pray. Amen.